Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove. My name is Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 11, Ich bin ein Emil Berliner. In the last episode, I talked about how Edison, in the years prior to the commercial availability of the phonograph, attempted to establish the machine as a tool for professional spaces. But in actuality, as a commercial market developed in the British Isles, it quickly consolidated around use in domestic and entertainment spaces. Consumers brought the talking machines into their homes, not their offices. Technical capacities formed one parameter of these developments, and collective imaginings formed another. The phonograph became a site for expressing fantasies of technological transformations of relationships interpersonal and social, and these domestic imaginings paralleled the development of a market centered on entertainment and personal use. In this episode, I want to share and discuss some of the stories and circumstances that both constructed and were shaped by what the emerging concept of sound recording meant to ordinary people in that cultural milieu. Had to get that word in there somewhere. And after that, we'll approach a subject that's been growing into something of an elephant in the room, Emil Berliner and the gramophone. Right. As we've covered in previous episodes, people began to dream about the future of the phonograph as soon as they heard news of its invention in the late 1870s. This led to the creation of new fictions, such as Villiers' The Future Eve, but it also encouraged people to look back and connect the technology to older tales, such as the surprising adventures of Baron Munchausen and other legends of talking objects, preserved voices, and preserved sounds. One example that emerged was a story about one of the twin colossi of Memnon at the Theban necropolis just opposite Luxor in Egypt. Early in the first century, the Greek geographer Strabo told of an earthquake in 27 BC that severed the northern Colossus. Afterwards, that damaged stone guard of Amenhotep's temple would sing every morning at first light, a sort of whistling hum, which we now assume may have been caused by dew evaporation and rising temperatures. Word of this phenomenon spread, and soon enough, according to the legend, hearing the statue sing was meant to bring good fortune one's way. This, of course, attracted visitors from all over the world, including kings and emperors. But the party stopped in 199 AD, when the perhaps in this instance ironically named Roman Emperor Septimius Severus repaired the Colossus. It never sang again, but the tourists kept coming anyway. Another story, perhaps less based in fact, told of a Dutch Captain Vasterlock, who in 1632, while sailing the southern seas, claimed to have encountered a sponge that would repeat what was spoken into it when squeezed. Well, I'm not sure what was going on with good old Captain Vasterlock, Maybe he had just shared a pipe or mushroom stew with one of the locals when he stumbled upon that square pant sponge. Whatever it was, I think the concept of recording foam is pretty nice, actually, and might make a good toy for a child or pet of some kind. Putting talking sponges aside, people also connected the phonograph to more substantiated parallels in nature. Birds such as the lyrebird in Australia and even the humble crow were compared to the phonograph in regard to their ability to mimic the sounds around them. And while nobody suggested learning languages from birds, recorded sound products began appearing on the market, such as Professor Rosenthal's language phone, that claimed to be able to teach a language in six weeks, and at least one writer wondered how effective a phonograph would be for teaching birds to speak. Well, I guess it would work, but I reckon the phonograph is better for parroting parrots, parroting parents, reverse parification, or something like that. Take that, you swine, birds. Flying pig? Hmm. Okay. 
Right. If folkloric and natural connections made the phonograph feel familiar, they also emphasized what was new and bewildering about the concept. For no myth or folktale from the past surfaced that specifically predicted the capacity of the machine to reproduce sounds more than once. And when the average person reflected on what such a machine meant for the future, they weren't thinking about offices and dictation. They were thinking much closer to the heart. One idea often referenced in fiction as well as commentary was the thought of a shy bachelor proposing by phonograph. This was one of many imaginings of the phonograph as a mediator in romantic and interpersonal affairs. Yet, at least in most fictional settings, the phonograph tended to cause more problems than it solved. One example of this was a story titled Love by Phonograph, which printed in Portsmouth on a Saturday in 1890. The tale tells of a young lady who seeks to use a phonograph to encourage her shy suitor to propose to her. A younger, mischievous brother makes his own silly, sordid recording and leaves it on the machine. When the shy suitor happens to listen to the recording, he mistakes the voice as belonging to a lover of the young lady. Heartbroken, he runs away from the machine and is never heard from again. In the story, the phonograph is imagined as a powerful conduit for the voice, one that allows the expression of the most sincere sentiments with all the emotional authenticity of the original speaking moment. Those formerly crippled by the intensity or awkwardness of a physical confrontation can now speak freely from the heart, whereas before the phonograph they would have had to write. Yet, at the same time, the technology is imperfect, as a voice alone, separated from a context and body, is very easy to misinterpret and confuse, particularly by those suffering souls most in need of its services. A year earlier, a comedic play called The Phonograph was staged at St. George's Hall in Walsall. In the play, two undesired suitors sought the hand of a wealthy widower in marriage. The first suitor proposed into the lady's phonograph, as it was referred to. But the second suitor mistook this proposal as the widower asking for his hand in marriage. Much confusion and hilarity ensued, and when the play ended, the two suitors were awkward allies listening to a final phonogram. Together, they heard the object of their intentions directing the maids to send both of them away, should they call. The phonograph was not the only new acoustic technology of the time becoming implicated in a mechanization of sorts of romantic affairs. Early advertisements and marketing for the radio and telephone also suggested possibilities for speaking to and hearing loved ones at a distance. What united all of these technologies, and continues to drive their power today, is the understanding that the reproduced voice is the voice itself of the original speaker, carrying all of his or her passions, authority, and presence. A story from 1898 presented as fact described a double wedding conducted by phonograph. According to the article, On account of the remoteness of a small town in northern Manitoba, a clergyman only visited once every four years. An eager groom didn't want to wait nearly half a decade to get married, so he rode to Winnipeg and got a phonograph, through which the wedding services were recorded and conducted. In this account, the phonograph is presented in a good light, as a machine positively restructuring human relationships between time, space, and sound. But many, if not most other stories, both factual and fictional, chose to explore the darker side of the phonographic future. I imagine these stories were something like what Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror is for us today. A near future implied by our technology, but a darker future, where the slightest extrapolations of our current communication technologies have deeply undermined pillars of our individuality, privacy, and humanity. In particular, the phonograph promised a new social menace, one that we are all too familiar with in our CCTV lives that of mechanical surveillance.
and not only surveillance, but a reproducible mechanical memory that can be used as evidence in the courts of law and love. Among the earliest printed fictions expressing these fears traces back to 1880, just as the tinfoil phonograph was fading into obscurity. The story, set in America, featured a character named Old Scroggins, who used a phonograph to secretly record a suitor speaking to his daughter. Old Scroggins captured the suitor insulting him during the conversations, and reproduced the insults to the suitor's embarrassment at a polite dinner. This scuppered the suitor's plans to wed his daughter, obviously, so at the end of the story, the suitor purchases a gun and heads east for Edison. I'm coming for you. Phonographs at the time couldn't practically be used in such a way to secretly record conversations, but that future felt right around the corner, and the imaginative minds wanted to ponder what that future held in store. Ten years later, in 1890, readers perusing their daily paper in Derby would have chanced upon an article called That Fatal Phonograph. It opened with a line, Little did I think what power of evil was latent in that seemingly simple mechanical device, and concluded with the lines, Now that you realize the fearful results of Mr. Edison's perverted ingenuity, I trust that you will no longer offend by filling your columns with praise of the man who reduced eavesdropping to a mechanical science. The article related supposedly true stories in which gentlemen's words were surreptitiously recorded and used as evidence against them in court to the effect of their ruin, financial or personal. The phonogram as courtroom evidence formed a persistent motif in this discourse, and was the subject of many other newspaper articles as well. The technical improbabilities of such stories did not escape the attention of contemporary commentators. A writer for the Daily News raised doubts regarding news of a court case in New York where a scheming wife was unknowingly captured by phonograph. The writer commented that such a story was beyond belief, as all sober commentaries he had read on the phonograph did not grant it the power to record anything clearly that was not directly spoken into the instrument. The writer assessed such claims as a newly forming literary device, citing a fictional story of a scientist whose murder was captured by phonograph in a similar fashion. Right, so these fantastic stories were being told and shared. But as I mentioned, the phonographs were also getting out there, so to speak. Before 1893, those with a keen interest in new technology and a bit of spare change may have been able to catch one of the demonstrations of the instrument at a local public center. Thousands upon thousands of people would have attended one or more of those lectures, but millions more wouldn't have had the chance for whatever reason. To be sure, the phonographs being released commercially at that time were extremely expensive instruments. And all of this makes one pause to think, are we simply discussing a world of the joys of rich boys with shiny new toys? Well, I think there are two things to remember here. The first, as is evident in our discussion today, is that the very existence of the technology led to the creation of myths, legends, jokes, and stories that were shared by everyone, princes and paupers alike. And after 1893, physically experiencing the technology started to become practical for all. An article in the June 1893 edition of the phonogram stated that the poor can now hear the phonograph for one penny in the streets. Last episode, we spoke about the success of coin-in-the-slot machines in the U.S., and throughout the 1890s, such machines began to collect in phonograph arcades throughout the United States. Well, I haven't found evidence of arcades like that being set up in Britain, but nevertheless, it seems opportunities were emerging to hear the technology at affordable prices. The aforementioned article concluded that Black Sal and Dusty Bob with their pennies are as welcome to the phonograph as my lord and lady Tom Noddy with their shillings were to Edison's lecturers of former years. This brings us around, somewhat, to notions of class and culture. 
which were important factors in the emerging market for sound recording technologies. And that brings me, in my roundabout way, to one of the fundamental aspects of that emerging market, the original format war. Long before DVD versus Blu-ray, CD versus cassette tape, and VHS versus Betamax, you had the battle between the cylinder and the record disc. There can be only one. Actually, in the course of this series, I've had very little to say about the disc. I haven't mentioned this history much because, well, before the mid-1890s at least, people of the time weren't thinking about the record disc and hadn't heard of the name Emil Berliner. Have you? Well, who was he? To sum him up for our history here, he was a German-American inventor, largely based in Washington, D.C., who patented a disc-based gramophone technology, and, perhaps more importantly as ever in this history, he got his machines and concepts into production across America and Europe. If you trace the family history of a vinyl record sitting as we speak in your local hipster music shop, it'll point towards the energy and efforts of Emil Berliner. He's been under the radar in our story so far, but in the 1890s he formed the Berliner Gramophone Company in the US, which more or less became the Victor Talking Machine Company, as well as the Gramophone Company in London, and Deutsche Gramophone in Germany. These companies would contribute enormously to the history of music in the 20th century. He was born in Hanover, Germany in 1851, but to avoid being drafted into war, he moved to Washington, D.C. when he was 19 years old. He soon moved to New York, where he did odd jobs by day, such as delivering papers, cleaning bottles, and working in a livery stable. But by night, he studied physics and engineering. In 1877, he moved up to Boston to work for Bell Telephone, but eventually resettled in D.C. in 1883 to focus on his personal research. He became interested in sound recording technology in these years, but rather than focusing on Edison cylinder technology, as was happening in the Volta laboratory just around a DC corner, so to speak, he decided to focus on a disc design implied by Scott's phonograph. And in 1887, he secured patents in the US, Germany, and England for a gramophone, a term we're all still familiar with today. Once he had his patents and his gramophone, he set out to create a market for both the machine and, of course, the discs it would play. Perhaps curiously, the first people he got on board was a German toy manufacturing company called Kammerer and Reinhardt, who approached him with a project in 1889. So the world's first disc record releases happened on a very small scale in Germany. It was small in every respect. Small rubber discs were produced for small hand-cranked machines with cardboard horns in small numbers. But it happened and it was the start of a process that continues in your local music shop today. These first record releases are now exceptionally rare items, but a few have survived to be digitized. Let's listen to one from 1890, which is apparently Emil Berliner himself singing Old Lang Syne. Its catalog number is record 42. Yeah, when he returned to the States, he decided to work with professional singers for the actual recording bit. Probably a good move. What you just listened to were the unassuming opening salvos of a battle, and we all know the gramophone would eventually win this battle. However, it didn't happen overnight. 
The last cylinders were produced in October of 1929, so the two technologies coexisted for some 40 years or so. Why the gramophone proved more popular than the phonograph is open to speculation, but historians will first point to some obvious physical differences that made the gramophone slightly more practical. Flat records were easier to store, easier to manufacture, easier to mass-produce, easier to display, and therefore easier to sell in a shop. And while issues of quality were debatable, they also tended to be louder and more durable than comparable cylinders. On top of the physical differences, there were also marketing choices that proved advantageous for the gramophone. The cylinders started to focus on high culture, such as operatic recordings, whereas the gramophone, generally but not exclusively, went for more popular in current genres of music, which seems to have been the right decision. But beyond round versus flat, rich sound versus loud sound, and opera versus popular song, something much more fundamental was at stake in these first 15 years of this competition. The success of the concept of the gramophone over the phonograph was absolutely crucial, and structured almost everything that followed in the history of the idea of sound recording. Let's unpack that a bit and think about these early machines. We are all by now, I hope, familiar with the phonograph. It's an amazing machine that allows you to make recordings of whatever you want and play them back as much as you want. You can also listen to what other people have recorded just as easily. And by the late 1890s, you would be able to mass manufacture your recording as well. The gramophone was different in that it was extremely difficult, expensive, and impractical to cut a gramophone record yourself. Certainly the machine couldn't do it. You needed entirely different equipment and expertise. The recording itself had to be done by professionals, which means the gramophone was a machine that people bought only to reproduce professionally made recordings. One aspect of this is that the gramophone implied a studio where only certain sounds could be recorded, deliberately, and with a strong sense of investment, of in some way needing to justify the substantial cost, as opposed to the concept of the phonograph, a machine that fit in a backpack and in theory could record anything louder than a pin drop, wherever it may be, be those sounds birds or secret conversations. With the gramophone, what was implied was that the technology would be used to make products, either for the market or perhaps for institutions like museums or national archives at a stretch. This put the means of production, so to speak, into the hands of a moneyed elite and embedded the technology deeply within capitalist structures of men in suits and profit margins. The question at stake was as follows. Is sound recording technology something that people are going to make use of in their daily lives to create their own recordings of anything and everything? Or is it something that people will use simply to reproduce professionally manufactured, packaged, marketed, and sold recordings? Sadly, in my opinion, it's the latter concept that won out. And the first victims of this victory were the phonographs themselves, which very quickly, for reasons of cost reduction and competition, started to sell as listen-only devices. After this point, the argument between the formats became about quality and the characteristics I mentioned earlier rather than capacity. One aspect of this that I find particularly interesting is the history of DIY music recording. For most of the 20th century, if you wanted to record your music, you had to convince a man in a suit that your music would make him money. Well, if you were lucky and you played your cards right, you might be able to get some authentic music out there, and you might be able to get some of that money, assuming your music is commercially viable. It's obvious in this system that recorded music got funneled into commodified structures and relations, and that those structures frame the history of recorded music throughout our century. Well, at least until the availability of affordable four-track tape recorders started to appear in the late 70s. From that point on, musicians could think about taking the power back, so to speak. 
That's not to say that great DIY music wasn't happening in the intervening years, but rather that amazing DIY recordings weren't being produced because it was simply too expensive. And all of this history could have been very different from the very beginning. The concept could have emerged that sound recording was something for people to do themselves, to record not only their music but their lives. And this desire would have driven the competition to develop in different ways and make recording more and more affordable and practical. Well, all of this being said, there's a danger of framing this history a bit too starkly when there have always been gray areas to navigate. Concepts did emerge of accessible studios that allowed one to cut a record of whatever they wanted to, which became a plot device in Graham Greene's Brighton Rock, for example, where we witnessed yet again the trope of recording technology leading to miscommunication. On the phonograph and DIY recording side of things, the machines didn't stop existing simply because the commercial battle was lost. Not only did the machine survive, but other portable recording technologies continued to be produced on the fringes of the market. As a result, there's a fascinating history to explore of anthropologists and folklorists taking such machines into forgotten and fading realms of music and culture. I hope to share some of that history with you in future podcasts. But for now, to conclude this episode, let's go back to the origins, when these stakes were still being contested. Let's turn our attention to a publication called The Talking Machine News, which first printed in May of 1903. In perusing the earliest issues, it becomes clear that this notion of how the technology should be used had not yet settled. Both sets of machines were becoming ever more widely available, and widely affordable as well. One commentator noted, Nowadays every home has a talking machine if they want it. But what tugs at my heart are the numbers of articles written for a public keenly interested in making their own recordings. These articles and letters focused upon techniques and methods for obtaining good recordings. They indicate, as our story thus far has confirmed, that it wasn't easy and obvious as was sometimes assumed in imagination and in fiction. But also, it shows that people were trying. They were getting out there and beginning to preserve and document the vibrations that struck their ears and their hearts, which I think is a beautiful thing. Along with discussions of how to record came discussions of what to record. In one article, for example, a funeral procession is deemed inappropriate, whereas a noisy rooster, to register a noise complaint, is deemed a good idea. Looking back, it's clear that these enthusiasts were a special breed, and perhaps it's telling that even today, when everyone carries sound recording machines in their pockets, people are still not using them to document the beauty of sound in their lives. Whereas, apparently, a photo of the bagel they had for breakfast is worthy of sharing with the world. Speaking of breakfast, ladies and gentlemen, please raise your speakers and join me in a toast to those of us who listen. Clink! Thank you, and goodbye.